Ephesians chapter 6. We're coming to the end of our study of the church this morning. We've spent, uh, including this week, six weeks looking at this idea of the most beautiful place on earth and what God intended the church to be. And uh, so we've covered a, a few topics over these last few weeks and began by looking at how we ought to pray for our church, to pray passionately and to pray deeply for one another uh, as a church. Then we looked at the plan that God had for the church, and that is that what did he intend it to be? Why did he institute it? Why did he build it? And so we spent a couple of weeks looking at that, that he is our authority and we are his spokesman here on earth. And then we considered in the last couple of weeks the partnership in the church, and that is how did God structure the church to work and to be a body? And so this morning we're going to end this, uh, this study with the purpose of the church and uh, kind of pulling all of these concepts together in one to see a, a, a beautiful practicality about what God has done here. And so we're going to look in Ephesians chapter 6 and we're going to take here a short passage of scripture and perhaps one which uh, we might not consider to look at if we were looking at the doctrine of the church, but I think it has some great truth for us. So Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look in verse 21, and uh, then we're going to read through the end and take a few thoughts. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21. But that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. Whom I have sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with you with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer over God's word. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word to look at this example that you set before us in person and church. Encourage us this morning from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We have, uh, and and I've deliberately, over these six weeks, I have deliberately gone to passages we are familiar with. In fact, every passage we've looked at over these last few weeks, we have looked at in its context within the last two years. And so I've deliberately gone back to that so we can refresh and review what we have already gone through. And the same is true of this passage here, when we studied through Ephesians, we came to the end here of it and found these beautiful, beautiful verses. What they do is they bring together for us some very important and very wonderful truths here. The book of Ephesians, if you want kind of a broad overview of what it is, can be essentially ground or or bound around these two things, and that is who we are in Christ and who we are in community. Uh, And so it builds around those two things to show us that because we are in Christ, then that places in a community, and how does that go? And we saw all that as we studied through the book of Ephesians. As we come here to the benediction, to this last portion of Paul's letter to Ephesus, Paul here is able to to express the beauty of a church in very practical terms. What does it need? How does it work? What's, how do we put all of these things together in a very beautiful way? Because the the idea of the church, and although what we've been doing we call systematic theology, although it's a doctrine, although it's a theology, it is a theology which is by far the most practical. 
I think I mentioned toward the beginning, it is my favorite doctrine because it is the place where all the beauties of the glories of God's doctrine are fleshed out, become evident and apparent and seen. And we see that in this uh, instruction here, or this guidance of Tychicus and Paul to the church of Ephesus. In a beautiful farewell, Paul gives us a rich example of what a church can and should be. So I have two thoughts I'm going to share with you this morning really quickly as we look through these things about what a church is, what it needs to persevere and to go beyond, to fulfill its purpose. And so the first is this, to, for a church to, to grow, to be what it is meant to be, to fulfill its purpose and meet all of these things that God designed it to be, it needs faithful ministers. It needs faithful ministers who serve together in love, who serve together side by side. Our text, which we've begun looking at here in Ephesians 6, talks about a man named Tychicus. Now, this man Tychicus is perhaps you will remember if you were here at the time, but Tychicus is barely mentioned in Scripture. I hardly find his name or anything about him anywhere within the New Testament. And yet, here we are, this little that we know of this man tells us a great deal. And in fact, what we do know of him, that little bit that we do know of him, is great praise. He finds great praise in just about every place and all the places that he's mentioned. And these words here by Paul are, are great praise for a very humble man. And he sets a great example of what it is to be part of a church. In fact, Paul calls him here a beloved brother. And he uses brother here not in the term uh, of a family situation in terms of like we are brothers in Christ. That's not how he's using the term here, beloved brother. But this is in the sense of a helper, a close companion, a loved co-worker. To Paul, this man Tychicus is a dearly loved helper. Now, we, we know, and when we think of Paul, generally most people, when they think of the Apostle Paul, think of a strong, gifted, and unique leader. You know, one who could be stoned, dragged outside of the city and left for dead, then get up again and walk back into the city. Uh, or the one who could be shipwrecked and, and bitten by snakes and, and all these sorts of things go on and, and still keep moving on and preaching the gospel, who could be rejected by those that he loved most dearly along the way. We think of him as this great, strong, uh, super-Christian almost. But one of the things that made Paul such a great example was that he recognized his own weaknesses. He knew that he was no super-Christian. He knew that he could not do what he was called to do on his own. And so when we come to beat this man Tychicus, what we find is just one of the many helpers that Paul had in his life. One of the many companions, one of the many close brothers that he had in his life. Among others that would be this close are, are men like Titus and Timothy and Silas. These ones who will draw close to him through his life. One of the things that we see and one of the great themes that comes out through the book of Ephesians and that we've been talking about through this uh, series on church is about who we are in community because of Jesus. How we're united together because of of Jesus, and that we need to serve side by side with each other. You know, everything that we have spoken about over these last few weeks is about our relationship in community, how Jesus Christ brings us into community, and how we 
we fight together and serve together and live together because of what Jesus Christ has done in our life. But the work of God in this world, as we've seen, is not carried out by a select and uniquely gifted few. Just like Paul learned to understand that the the gospel was not going to spread through the world on his shoulders alone, neither is it going to continue to spread now on a few shoulders, but on those who work together. God gifts some to lead, we have seen and we have understood, but their job is to equip, to help and to encourage as they do the work of God, to help others do the work of God. And we saw that in Ephesians chapter 4 in the last week. Your churches never grow on the efforts of just a few. They need each of us to commit to working side by side with one another, serve one another. But we'll notice as we look here that what it says of Tychicus, it says, but that you also may know my affairs and how I'm doing. Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. It is clear in the way that Paul writes of Tychicus here and in other places that there is a great affection between the two. They have a a dear love for one another, but Tychicus's motive for serving isn't Paul. He is not serving and doing these things because he loves Paul. That would, of course, come into it. He does indeed love Paul. But why is he serving? Why is he doing this? Paul tells us right there. He's doing it for the Lord. He's serving not for Paul, but for Jesus. That's why he does it. He serves Paul in the Lord. See, we don't commit to one another and we don't serve one another because we like each other. Now, we hope that that will be uh, a a given in that manner and that we will grow not only to like each other, but to love each other. But the reason that we serve and minister and and meet one another's needs is, is not primarily because we like each other, but because we love Jesus. And so we serve one another because we serve our Savior. We know that this is what God desires. And this is what brings him glory. So we serve together in love, and in serving together in love, we'll serve together faithfully. There is a great faithfulness seen in this man, Tychicus. And in the other places where he is mentioned, which are said so just a few, that he's mentioned in, in Timothy, he's mentioned in Titus, and in Colossians, just by name and just by passing. But in each of those little references, we find out little bits of details about who he is, and only just a little bit. In Colossians, Paul tells us that it's uh, Tychicus who delivers this letter. So the letter we're reading here, Ephesians, that he has taken that letter and he's delivered it to the church at Ephesus. He's also been the one who has taken the letter of Colossians and delivered it to the church in Colossae. So he's delivered these letters for Paul, but that's not all he has, has done. Paul tells us in when he writes to Timothy that he was going to send Tychicus to Ephesus later. So this time he takes this letter. Later on, he will return to Ephesus again with a letter for Timothy. But while he's there, he will relieve Timothy so that Timothy can go back and, and spend time with Paul. So he'll fill in and he'll meet the needs of the people serving them while he's there. Later in Titus, uh, Paul says that he's either going to send Tychicus or Artemis at that time, and they were going to go to Crete. They were going to go to Crete, and they were going to fill in for Titus. That's where he was serving at the time, so that Titus could hear from Paul, and then Paul, Titus could move and go back to see Paul for a while. 
while Titus is away, he would take over the role there. So in his, his uh, life and in his ministry, as he served there, he carried five letters, at least five letters for delivery from Paul to others. And while he delivered those letters, he was considered faithful enough to serve in those churches in leadership positions, to teach, to encourage. And he did this because he loved his Savior. And so he served these other people. He relieved them so that they could do what they needed to do. Tychicus is the embodiment of a servant. His heart was the heart of one to serve, to give himself. And when he did that, he did it at great cost to himself. You know, we're, we're talking about a day, and, and you understand this, where to, you know, we, we now could send letters by email and wouldn't have to send anybody. Right, for Tychicus to go from where he was, even from Ephesus to, to Crete, was going to take him quite some time and cost some money and time. So what Paul had entrusted to Tychicus to do was costly to him in very many ways. But the cost that Tychicus bore meant that there was a great blessing to those whom he served. Titus, Timothy, Others were able to have the break they needed from their service and their ministry so that they could go be fed in other places. The, 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 the meaning and the meat behind our service is, yes, it's going to cost us. But the cost to us is of great benefit to those that we serve. Faithful leaders and faithful servants are needed. We need these kinds of servants in all churches people with passion for God and a passion for God's people, people that will commit to pursue godly leadership and to pursue service amongst the people of God. Now, I said I was going to be short until we're moving on to my second and final point here. Because really what we're doing is we're drawing all of these things into one, uh, one last thought. For a church to pursue its purpose and to persevere, it needs faithful ministers. But the second is, as ju- is just as important, if perhaps not more. It is the reason that ministers, and that is that all of us who serve need to be faithful. And that is, we need faithful ministers who are faithful to God's message. Faithful ministers who are faithful to God's message. For this, I want us to do a, just a quick little survey through Ephesians and grabbing out a few portions here to show what Paul means when he writes these words at the end and what it means in the context of church, because that's what Ephesians was about. Ephesians was about how do we live in community. The first, when we talk about being faithful to God's message, we are reminded of one great truth, and that is that Christ gives us peace. You see, when Paul writes here, and he's written there in verse 21, but that you may know my affairs and how I am doing, Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make known all things to you, whom I've sent to you for this very purpose, that you may know our affairs, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace to the brethren. Now, when we read the word peace, we, we as the people of God, hear something very different than what the world hears when we read the word peace, particularly when it says peace to the brethren. Because we know, we know that that word peace, when it comes from God, is infused with such deep and glorious and passionate truth. Truth like this, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. 
Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. He starts this passage here in Ephesians 2 with an emphatic statement, which is why we have at the beginning of verse 14, for he himself, is because he's making an emphatic statement. He just doesn't want to say, and Jesus... Uh, so that we might pass over it. He wants us to know that what he is saying is absolute truth. It is a, a statement that we need to hear. It's one we need to grab onto and listen to and understand the deep truths of it. He doesn't want us to miss it, miss it, so he gives us an emphatic statement. He, Jesus himself, is our peace. He is our peace. He desires our peace. That is, he desires our greatest good. What kind of peace does God want for us? What is it that he is offering for us? What is it that the message of the gospel says when it talks about peace? For true peace, we need to deal with the cause of its absence. The absence of peace comes because of sin. See, sin is what causes our divisions. Sin is what causes our fears. Sin is what causes our troubles. Sin is at the heart of everything that, that runs peace out of our lives. Sin is what puts it at odds with one another, and it's what puts it at odds with God. And so, if indeed, as Paul says here, is true, as the rest of Scripture attests to, that Jesus is peace, to be enemies with God is to be void of peace. If Jesus is peace, if we have no relationship with God, we have no opportunity for peace. Because he is peace. And so in finding Christ, in knowing Christ, is knowing what true peace is. And so Christ not only is our peace, but Christ is makes peace. He breaks down what separates us, what divides us. In our sin, we easily find things to divide us. I was listening to political commentators and things yesterday and last night about, about here and things going on with budgets and, and all that. And both here and, and he, was, he was talking about Australia, but drawing a, a comparison to America, that it's, it, we have never seen such... Uh, division in ideologies in our world like we have now. Such divides and and, uh, such polarization over things. We divide so easily over things like politics and nationality or sport even, or culture. But Jesus brings peace by breaking down all the barriers that separate us. He breaks down those things. He creates not a hybrid people, but a new people. This is what I love about verse 15. He says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, 
that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. What a beautiful picture that is. That is, with Jesus, being in Christ, having come to Jesus Christ in salvation, not only does that bring reconciliation between me and God, but because of the reconciliation that brings between me and God, it brings reconciliation and peace between me and others. In a unique way. I love how he describes it because he says he's not bringing two together and having two who are close, but he says he's making one out of two. To bring two together to make one new thing. The church father Chrysostom describes it this way. He says, as if one should melt down one statue of silver and another of lead and the two together should come out gold. That's what Jesus does. That's the the unity that Christ brings in his peace. He's taking people from vastly different things and molding them together into one unique, glorious body. A new people created in him for his glory. He makes peace between us and God and peace between us. He brings peace. Christ is our peace. Christ makes peace. And it is Christ who brings peace. He is the one who makes it possible. And he, it says in verse 17 of Ephesians 2, came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him... We both have access by one spirit to the Father. Christ made it possible for us to have peace with God because he dealt with sin. He dealt with what is at the heart of all of our separation, of all of our anxieties, of all of our differences. And so, while he gives us peace, he also fills us with love. See, Paul's benediction says, peace to the brethren. When we read those words, we think peace. Beautiful, deep, glorious peace that comes because I am made one with God. I am brought into his family. I am in Christ. And being in Christ, I am now at peace with people, with those he brings me into contact with and brings me to be bound with. But then Paul says, peace to the brethren and love. Christ fills us with love. This is something Paul brought to our attention way back in the beginning. And in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 15, it says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. Love is the evidence of faith. Love is what what shows that we truly believe. Right doctrine is important and we need to know right doctrine and be able to to talk it and be able to defend it and be able to speak it. But if we can't speak right doctrine in the context of love, if we can't consider one another and the way that we interact on these things, without love, we're, like Paul describes, just annoying noise. Nobody listens to annoying noise. We try and get away from it. Last night... I was uh, not in a good headspace trying to finish off sermons and just all around me all night was just noise. The, the, my, my daughters were running around doing their... They weren't being naughty. No one's being naughty. They were just doing their thing and just talking. That's what they do. They just talk. 
And then they finally went to bed. And then when they went to bed, Silas woke up and he did his thing. He wasn't being naughty. He was just doing his thing. And while that was going on, so was the washing machine. And it was all just and it was just noise. And it was just all just because of where I was, just an annoying noise. And so I went outside. So I've got to get out. Right. And that's kind of how it is. We, we may have love. You know, nobody was doing the wrong thing last night. And it was all in family love. But it was just at the wrong time. Okay, the same is true if we interact with one another in these ways. We may have heart of love, but of the right thing, but if we're not doing it in love, we're just going to try and run away. We need to do the right thing with the right heart in love. Love is the evidence of faith. We're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ to show that we're saved. John, of course, pulls no punches in his uh, his epistle when he tells us that if we don't love the brethren, then we have reason to question whether indeed we are indeed saved. And so we need to thank God for the love that he has shown us. You're part of what motivates us to love one another, to be the loving people we need to be in every situation is to remind ourselves of the love that God has shown us. A love which we don't deserve. And so I will love others even when I don't feel that they deserve it, whether that's true or not, because Christ loved me when I didn't deserve it. That's how community works. So we need to be a more loving people. Christ gives us peace. He fills us with love and he unites us in faith. Peace to the brethren and love with faith. We read these words last week in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13. And he says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith. Of course, that phrase, till we all come, we know that it is an expression of purpose. That is, what is God doing in our life? Why is he, he teaching us? Why is he having us serve one another? So that we will come together. We begin to, to think the same in Christ, believe the same in Christ. That unity built around our salvation, which grows and deepens, is the faith of God's people because we serve the same master. We are bound by him in faith. You know, he is our Lord. He is our master. At the heart of Christianity is submission to the Lord. Jesus. That's at the heart of what Christianity is, a submission to Jesus as Lord. It's one of the great uniters of believers is that we have each submitted our lives to the same Lord. There's an old uh, illustration uh, of this. that says, you know, you, If you have a room of a thousand pianos, how do you get those thousand pianos to play the same note and the same key? Well, you can tune one piano and then you can tune that uh, each piano or use a tuner to tune them or you can take the, the, uh, the tuning fork. Now, if I take that tuning fork and I tune every piano to that same fork, all the, all the pianos will be playing the same because they've been tuned to the same thing. They might not be the same piano, but they have one common thing together. And the same is true of Christians. It's not that you uh, are bound to me or me to you or, or how we think the same that way. It's that we are all bound to Christ. 
We're all pursuing Christ. He is the tuning fork. As we pursue him individually, together we begin to sound the same. Because we begin to sound like Christ. He is our saviour, our master. We are bound to him by faith. You see, there is no other way for salvation but Christ. We express that together in one symbol, in baptism, which shows what we have done and who we are and what Christ has done for us. And then we are instruments of God's grace. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, somehow, this salvation by grace must be applied. Somehow this this truth, this unity which God speaks of needs to be applied. And so how do I move from death to life? How do I find that peace which binds? Well, it comes through faith, to trust, to believe. That peace is applied when I believe God is who he says he is. When I admit that God is God and I am not. When I believe what God says about my sin. When I believe what God says about why Jesus came. When I can say, yes, I believe God is holy and gracious. That I am sinful and deserve punishment. But I believe Jesus died in my place for my sin. When I can admit that this is faith. Not what I do, but what God gives me to see in him. This is a gift, pardon me, a gift from God. Comes by hearing, for by, uh, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. What does the church need? Well, how does it move forward? Has it become what it needs to be and meet its purpose? It needs faithful ministers who are faithful to the message of Christ. Paul seeks God's divine favor here as he ends this sermon, this letter. He seeks divine favor on those that love God. Divine favor. Grace. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Grace. An undeserved blessing. Those blessings... Consider that for a moment. What's bound up in that word grace? What's bound up in the idea of God's favor upon you? Vast amounts. His acceptance, salvation, to be called children, to be blessed daily with wonderful blessings of God, the the undeserved favor that's bound up in that word grace is beyond contemplation. The more we consider what God gives in His grace, the more we will find of what God gives in His grace. To speak words like grace be with you is to speak a great blessing onto the people of God. To speak to God, to ask God to bestow all of His great 
bounteous, bounteous blessings on those whom he loves, immeasurable and eternal. Anyone who understands the message of the gospel will desire God's grace on his people. And with that in mind, Paul calls us to respond to all that God has given us. It's interesting here how Paul ends this letter. His grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. He calls us to respond in sincere love. Now what makes this interesting and intriguing is because although Paul has spoken about love often in Ephesians, and he's spoken to the Ephesians about love through here in many different contexts, this is the first time in this whole letter to this church where Paul speaks of our love for Christ. So he has spoken often about what Christ has done for us. He has spoken often about how Christ has loved us. He has spoken about how because of Christ's love for us and what Christ has done for us, how that opens the way for us to love one another. So he's spoken about all sorts of aspects of love through this whole thing as he talks about who we are in Christ and then who we are in community. But in this, to this point, through all that he has written here, he has not once talked about our love to Christ until here. And it's an interesting thing because it reminds us what Paul is doing here is that he shows us all the beauties and the glories of what Christ does in us, not individually only, but in community together through what Christ has done by bringing us together. He says, now that you have considered all of the aspects of what God has done in life and loved you and allowed you to love others, consider all of that now in sincerity, turn that love to God. Love the God who loved you and who has opened the way for you to love those around you. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. That word sincerity speaks of an undying, an unfading, an enduring love. It speaks of love in, et- in an eternal quality. So Paul closes with encouragements in our commitments to Christ. <laughs> Consider all that he's done for you. And having considered all that he's done for you by loving you and by rescuing you and then by placing you into a community where you can love others, <laughs> love the one who made it all possible. Paul has shown us the riches of who we are in Christ. Peace with God. That we are loved by God. That we are adopted by God. That we are blessed eternally. That we are indeed a special people. And how do we respond in sincere love? By how we live in community and how we live in character. That's how we respond. By responding, God, Christ has made all of this possible to open up the way for us to live in community for him. And how do we respond? We live in character and in community in a way which brings him glory. So as we bring this to an end, the first thing we really need to consider where we started at is firstly, are you in Christ? Do you know Jesus Christ, the Savior? Have you indeed made peace 
with God. Have you realized, have you seen that God is who he says he is? That you are who God says you are? A sinner desperately needing salvation. And recognize that Christ is the answer. He is the one who makes peace. Are there areas in your life that you know you need to bring into line with his will? If indeed, as we have seen over the course of these weeks, Christ is head of the church, that he is the master, that he is the, the, the one who is ruler and has given his authority in this world, then how do we need to bring our lives into line with his world, with his rule as master and Lord? We have a baptism next week. Do you need to be baptized? And we can do that next week. We can talk about that. Join the church. Is there a place you need to serve or can use your gifts and talents in meeting the needs of those around you? We ought not to leave this series the same as we began, but grow. See, how can I love my church? That is, those sitting around me. How can I take what God has given me and make this place the most beautiful place on earth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time we've been able to spend in briefly looking through the beauty of what you do in community. That you have created this glorious institution of the church to display your glory. To show to the world what it is to know you. To preach the gospel. To show love. To be examples to a world where peace and love are desperately missing. That they can see that there is indeed a place where true peace and true love resides. Dear God, let us be that place. Let us be bold in our witness to your gospel and to your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us uh, close here with the song of...